Have any of you ever had a, a change of plans that just wrecked your day? Uh, a few weeks ago, I was, I was hanging some drywall in the kitchen, and then I was mudding the seams, and I, I was working on uh, a room and walking backwards so I could see my work from multiple angles, and I looked good from this side, I looked good from that side, and I needed to take a step back and see how it all blended together. And that step backwards ended up being a very long step uh, because I forgot that there was a massive hole in the floor. I had been working on some plumbing, and I had cut a hole in the floor, and I had covered most of it with some plywood, but not all of it. And as I took a step back, that left side of my body fell for, in, in slow motion for about three hours before I regained my balance. And once I made sure I was, I was all in one piece and I was still on the second floor, I looked down to see what on earth had just happened, and I could see the kitchen. And when you're in the second floor, and you can see a room in the first floor, it's a little bit disheartening. <laughs> and at that point, I packed up all my tools and I quit for the day. <laughs> and nothing, nothing else productive was going to happen that day. My project was totally derailed because of my own mistake. It ruined my day, and I wanted to curl up in a ball and hide inside of a closet. <laughs> See, as humans, sometimes by our own fault, sometimes by things outside of our control, our plans are constantly changing and it can ruin or it can wreck our days. You want to make a quick run to the grocery store and the deer on the side of the road says, not so fast. Or you might want to wake up, whip up a quick dinner and you open the fridge and everything is just lukewarm. And your plans, by no fault of your own, they change. And it makes you want to curl up in a ball and go hide in the closet for a few minutes. <laughs> Suddenly, it feels like life is requiring you to, to call an audible, to change your plans drastically. And then life is, well, it feels like at least it's falling apart at the seams. Nothing is going according to plan. And unfortunately, the human tendency in those moments when our lives are turned upside down, our tendency as humans, uh, was when nothing is going to plan, it negatively affects our ability to minister to others. I mean, our lives can be derailed by ever-changing plans, and that can wreck our ability to minister. And that's not a good thing, because every Christian, God has called every Christian to minister. All Christians are supposed to make disciples. And when our lives are turned upside down, when things don't go our way, it can wreck our ability and or our desire to minister. And in our passage this morning, Paul is going to address that problem. He's going to teach us about ministry through a specific metaphor. And in this passage, that, that metaphor is smell or aroma. That's what Paul is going to talk about ministry about, as this smell. You can see it starting in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, as Landon just read a few moments ago. Paul says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And so we could ask this question of this uh, verse here. What is ministry? And Paul would go, well, it's spreading the knowledge of Christ wherever we go. I mean, it's using our lives to make people aware of who Jesus is and what he has done. Ministry happens wherever the fragrance or the aroma of Christ is is. So when our life derails and we stop ministering to people effectively because of our change of plans, that's not what God desires. Because God desires each one of us to be accomplishing ministry. 
And we're going to find in this passage that God has sovereignly ordained a way for us to accomplish ministry wherever it is that we go. He's ordained a way for us to do ministry everywhere we go. Wherever we go, we can always be doing ministry for the Lord. God has given us a method to be able to do that. And so I just want to begin this morning by explaining how freeing that truth is, that you can do ministry wherever the Lord leads you. I find that to be a liberating truth. It's liberating to me to know that I can go anywhere and ministry can be accomplished. It's freeing to know that wherever God leads you, you can do great things for him. That's remarkably liberating. And once we've covered two liberating truths about the ministry that can happen anywhere at every time, we'll move on to a a third truth, which is what you need to do in order to minister everywhere at every time. So let's start by looking first at those those two liberating truths about ministry happening everywhere. The first one, we find it in verses 12 and 13. Ministry can happen anywhere, so you can leave behind even fruitful opportunities. Look at verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, in order for these first two verses to to make sense, we've got to cover a few bases here. And let's cover the first one uh, right away. Um, It sounds totally basic and ridiculous, but I need to say it anyways. Paul is just a regular human. We we have this tendency to elevate people in Scripture to be something a little bit more than human. That's not the case. Paul is just a regular human seeking to follow the Lord in this moment. But in this moment, as he says, his heart is unsettled. He has no rest in his spirit when he doesn't find Titus in Troas. And in order to understand why his spirit is so restless and, and filled with angst, we need to to catch up a little bit on Paul's very complicated relationship with the Corinthian church. You'll notice that we're in 2 Corinthians, which implies there was a 1 Corinthians, but there's actually more letters than just that. There are four, or sometimes people think there are five letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And so let me catch you up here on Paul's very complicated relationship with this church. Paul is on a second missionary journey, and he's in Troas. He's 200 miles away from Corinth. He's across the Aegean Sea. And while he's in Troas, he has a vision. And in his vision, there's a man from Macedonia, and he is pleading with Paul, would you come to us and would you do ministry here? We need the gospel. And so Paul follows that call. He goes to Macedonia, and then he travels a little bit further south, and he ends up in Corinth. Now, Paul ministers in Corinth for about a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer, and then he leaves. And other gifted servants, they come, they do even more ministry in Paul's absence. One of them, his name was Apollos. But after he leaves, there's some massive problems that begin to form in Corinth. And so Paul writes them a letter, not not the letter 1 Corinthians, he writes them a letter even before that, Uh, but Paul references it in 1 Corinthians, which is the only reason we know it exists. And that letter makes it to Corinth, the believers there read it, and they totally misunderstand it. And so Paul writes an additional letter to clarify, that's the book of 1 Corinthians, And if you've read 1 Corinthians, it's rather confrontational. It gets in your face. And Paul uses a lot of sarcasm to make his point very clear. And the Corinthians did not like that. They didn't respond well to that letter at all. In fact, they respond so poorly that Paul says, you know what, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to make an emergency visit to go fix this church. They need to learn 
what they're doing wrong. And so Paul makes this emergency stop there and he confronts them face to face. That visit doesn't end well. There was this leading authority figure in the church who resists Paul and his apostolic authority. And so Paul leaves and his heart is still unsettled. And so following that emergency visit, Paul writes a third letter, which is not 2 Corinthians. It's another letter that we don't have. And Titus carries that letter from Paul back to the church in Corinth to hopefully get them to change their heart, to to have a change of mind about Paul and in responding in obedience. How, how is it that this Corinthian church can, can repent? That's what that letter is all about. So that brings us to what Paul has just said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I'm in Troas and I'm waiting for Titus. Right? I'm waiting for him to bring this letter back to me. And as I'm in Troas, my aim is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, this this glorious good news that Jesus Christ has borne God's wrath for sin, and he offers life and freedom and forgiveness and righteousness. That's what I'm trying to do in Troas as I'm waiting for Titus. And as he's in Troas, it seems that God has just providentially removed every single barrier to the gospel. That this, this door of resistance to the gospel has just been blown off its hinges and, and Paul is accomplishing great ministry there in Troas. Like there's this massive opportunity for gospel advancement. And that's a good thing because if you remember, Paul left Troas early on his second missionary journey. He didn't get a minister there as long as he wanted to. And so God has removed all these barriers, and Paul is doing great ministry in Troas, and we expect Paul to say, I'm overjoyed at the opportunity I have to do ministry here. But that's not the case. Instead of having this this great joy at gospel opportunities in Troas, Paul's heart is in turmoil. He's he's waiting for this response to his third letter to the church at Corinth, this very sorrowful letter calling for genuine repentance. And verse 4 actually captures how much angst and turmoil is in Paul's heart over this church. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4. Paul says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, with many tears, not so that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul says, I'm I'm not writing this difficult letter to you so that that I can upset you, but no, I want you to know how I love you and how I want you to repent. Like, that's how much anguish Paul's heart is in. And because his heart just, just can't settle down because he's so grieved about this church and he doesn't know what's happening and how they're responding to this letter, he leaves behind the massive open door for the gospel in Troas. And he goes to Macedonia to meet with Titus a few days earlier. Life had gone off the rails, it seemed. There had been this massive change of plans because of the disobedience of a church, and it was affecting Paul's ability to minister. And so Paul says, I'm leaving. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 13, when Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit, and I went to Macedonia to go see Titus, what I want to do with Paul is I want to pick him up by the collar and hold him against the wall and go, what are you doing? Paul, what are you doing? Why are you worried about the church in Corinth? Look at what God is doing here in Troas. Like, get over yourself. Get a grip. There's there's ministry to be done here in Troas. 
You can accomplish great things for the Lord because he's removed all these barriers to the gospel. Look at what God is doing. Every single barrier has been removed. The gospel is going forth. It seems like every single conversation is a, is a conversation about God and the gospel and people are turning to Christ by the dozens. Paul, forget about Corinth for just a few moments. Now, if you or I were so bold as to actually do that, <laughs> which thankfully I don't think we are and we don't have the ability to do that, what would Paul say to us if we actually got in his face in that way? Well, he would assure us that we can leave behind fruitful opportunities because, God, uh, because ministry can happen anywhere. Yes, ministry can happen in Troas where there's this wide open door for the gospel, but also ministry can happen in Corinth where there have been some major obstacles. Why was it that Paul could leave behind the massive fruitful fields of Troas and go to Corinth? Well, it's because he had this confidence that everywhere he went, God would enable ministry to happen. Paul knew that the aroma of Christ on his life would enable ministry wherever it was that he went. And so we can be assured of this reality because of the next verse, verse 14. It teaches us the second liberating truth about this ministry happening everywhere. And it's that because ministry can happen anywhere, you can simply focus on following the Lord's leading. You can just follow the Lord's leading because ministry can happen anywhere. Look at verse 14. Paul says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now I know this verse feels a little bit like an abrupt transition because verse 13, he says, I had no rest of my spirit, so I left Troas and went to Macedonia. Then he starts the next verse, Thanks be to God. That feels a little bit abrupt, but, but it's actually not. Paul is explaining why he's willing and able to leave this fruitful ministry in Troas. And in order to explain, he uses a, a, an illustration that the people of Corinth would have been uh, very familiar with. It's an illustration of a triumphal procession, or you could call it a victory parade. Paul is going to use this imagery to get his point across. See, after conquering a rival kingdom... Uh, a general would take all these people that he conquered, he'd put them in chains, and he'd lead them behind him in a victory parade, flaunting them before his king, saying, look what I was able to accomplish for you. And the king would look on with, with pleasure as he sees this groundbreaking victory that his kingdom has had over another, that the enemy has been subjugated. There'd be incense burned all along the parade route. There would be sacrifices and there'd be street vendors and, and selling street food. And literally, the smell of victory would be in the air. And this is an, an interesting illustration for several reasons. First, know who the leader of this procession, this victory parade is. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Paul says, I'm not the leader of this victory parade. Christ is the leader, and I'm just a captive. I have been captivated by Christ. Christ, this conquering general, has ascended to earth. He's defeated the enemy of sin. He's conquered my sin nature. He's made me a servant to the glory of the Father. Like, hallelujah, my sin has been dealt with. But here's the reminder of this illustration. You're not the general. You're a captive of Christ. You're not your own because you were bought with a price. And if you're in Christ, then you must be his servant. Like Christ conquered your sinful heart and he parades you before the Father to the glory of the Father. Hallelujah for that kind of Savior who offers 
new life and, and captures our hearts so that we love him and serve him. But there's another interesting aspect about this illustration, and it's that as we follow Christ in this victory parade, Paul is using this metaphor or this illustration to show that our lives become like incense burners. We start to spread an aroma as we live as the servants or as the captives of Christ. We're bound to do his will, and our lives become incense burners. We give off this aroma that spreads the knowledge of Christ and his work in us. We give off the aroma of Christ, and we can do that anywhere he leads. He always leads us in this triumphal procession. Are you beginning to see Paul's point here? Paul says he can follow Christ anywhere because he's just a servant following his master. And on that victory parade, wherever it is that Christ leads, Paul's life is going to carry the aroma of Christ. Wherever the Lord's lead, Lord leads, ministry is going to happen. Like, that is such a liberating truth to me. And I want to share with you, just briefly, the implications of that truth when it comes to my life. And I'll be, I'll be totally frank with you. Based on the burden that God has placed on my heart and also Jai's heart, and as we talk about it frequently, we both foresee the Lord eventually calling us into foreign missions. Whether that's in five years or 20 years, I don't know. Or whether that's a burden that the Lord shifts into something else, I don't know. But this is what I do know. Wherever God leads, ministry will happen. God could call me to leave the most fruitful field that the world has ever seen. People could call me crazy for leaving it. But I could know that I'm doing the right thing because I'm focusing on following where the Lord is leading. Right? That's the conviction that I've come to based on this text. But have you come to the same conclusion? If you were totally settled into life here and God came knocking, leading you to someplace totally unfamiliar, someplace far away from the, the comfortable life that you've crafted for yourself here, would you be content to pack it all up and to leave because you know that you can serve wherever it is that the Lord leads? I mean, I, let, me, let me be very uh, upfront. I'm not wishing anyone away. <laughs> That's not what I'm doing. I love all the people that the Lord has brought to the ministry here. But if God called you into the unknown and to follow him, would you do it? Would you be content to be a minister of the gospel of grace wherever he leads? Like when you find massive opportunities to share the gospel with your coworkers, and, and you're, it feels like a very fruitful field that you're, you're making progress as you build this gospel relationship with this coworker, and then your health starts to deteriorate, and you feel that God might actually be leading you to retire, would you be willing and able to retire without guilt? I would say, yes, you should be able to because God will enable ministry to happen wherever he leads you. That's the liberating truth of this passage. The aroma of Christ on your life will be wherever he leads you and you will do ministry wherever the Lord leads you, even if it's away from a massive, wide open door to the gospel. That if you simply focus on following the Lord wherever he takes you, you can and you will be able to minister, minister effectively for him. Minister to your family, minister to your coworkers, minister to your church family. Like if you follow God, you will be able to minister wherever he leads you. What a liberating truth that ministry can happen anywhere. If Litchfield is your mission ground, praise the Lord. If he calls you to India, praise the Lord. He will ensure that ministry happens wherever you go. We spread the aroma of Christ in every place as we simply 
follow the Lord. Now, because ministry can happen anywhere, you can leave behind these fruitful opportunities where the gospel is advancing. You can walk away from open doors to the gospel and just focus on following where the Lord leads you. Those are the the two beautiful and freeing truths about where ministry can happen. But now we have to move on to the third and the harder admonition regarding this everywhere you go type of ministry. And it's this, because ministry can happen anywhere, you must pay close attention to your aroma. Look at verse 15 with me. Paul says, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. See, Paul is saying in these three verses that we're supposed to be giving off the aroma of Christ. Here's the problem. That's not our natural scent. We reek of the flesh and of our sin nature. And that's why we have to pay very careful attention uh, to our aroma. A couple months ago, I, I saw on the news uh, a video clip of this house that had a natural gas leak in their basement. And I know most of you are not scientists, but you, you know well enough that, that natural gas and sparks are not a great combination in your basement. And this gas leak got so large and was so contained before there was a spark that the explosion blew the house literally to smithereens. And the explosion was so large that the the explosive debris from the house landed on other houses and burned them to the ground as well. It it was a a horrible tragedy. Um, So do you know when I walk into my basement every time now (laughs) what I'm smelling (laughs) or or trying to smell? I'm always smelling for gas. When I descend those few steps into the basement, I take on superhuman smelling capabilities. I I am part man, part bloodhound. And I follow my nose to every single corner of that basement, and I imagine lots of smells that aren't actually there because I'm I'm vigilant, (laughs) trying to make sure that the house doesn't explode. Why? Because some aromas are good, And some are deadly. You and I are called to give off this wonderful aroma of Christ. And that aroma is is going to reach groups. Whether or not it's the aroma of Christ, that, that, that aroma is going to reach three different groups. If it's the aroma of Christ, that's great. If it's the aroma of your flesh and of your sin nature, that's horrible. But who are these three groups that your aroma is going to reach? Well, the first one is God. Paul says that we are the fragrance of Christ to God. God smells your life. God has seen fit to to use your life to spread the aroma of Christ. And he knows if you're doing that well or not. He's smelling your life. But your aroma reaches much further than, than just to the Lord. It reaches some other people as well. Because to some people, the aroma of your life will be a delightful fragrance. But to others, it's going to carry the stench of death. And it's not that you're living this bipolar life. 
It's just that there's a very divisive smell in your life. And it's the smell of the cross. See, some will see the impact of the cross on your life and they will be attracted by it. God will soften their hearts to see their need of a savior. They will turn to Christ, they will repent, and they will come to new life. Others will see the cross in your life, this defining aspect of your life. They will scoff at the idea of a crucified savior. They will scoff at the idea of living your life as a servant, being willing to suffer according to God's purpose. They will scoff at you. They will write off your aroma as the aroma of death. That is what Paul is saying in these these three verses. And the outcome for those two different groups is very different. For those who reject the fragrance of your life as the stench of death, well, they will be led to death. Because they've rejected more than just your testimony. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected Christ himself. But for those who see the impact of the cross on your life, and they're attracted to you and to the gospel as God works in their hearts, and as they, they turn to Christ in repentance and they cast their faith on him and him alone, they'll be led to life, even through the death of Christ. And the fact that the aroma of Christ on your life is part of the way that God draws and actually draws people to himself and offers the gospel, extending hope to them, that should make you pay very careful attention to your spiritual aroma. Now, I don't know about you, but the stakes of this everywhere you go ministry as you spread the aroma of Christ, the the stakes are rising as I study this passage. Like literally the stakes are life and death. Am I going to attract someone to the life that is offered to them by Christ or whether it's by the cross or just by my fleshly living, am I going to push them further away from Christ? And so Paul raises an important question because the stakes are so high. He says, who is sufficient for these? Jacob, if you could go back to verse 16, we can see it there. I believe that last phrase Who is sufficient? The stakes of this type of ministry seem way too high. And then he goes on to to verse 17. He goes, okay, let me just say, these people are definitely not sufficient for ministry because they're doing ministry for their own gain. They're not doing ministry the right way. They're certainly not sufficient for ministry. They're peddling the word of God. They're doing it for themselves. They don't actually care about genuine ministry and about Christ. But that's only part of the answer. Yes, those people aren't sufficient for ministry. But are we sufficient for ministry? Well, the answer should be obvious. No. No one is competent enough to fulfill that that calling of living as an incense burner, showing the character of Christ, living as a captive of Christ, carrying his aroma with them. This is, this is the harsh reality. You're not sufficient for ministry in and of yourself. The most brilliant theologian is not sufficient for ministry in and of himself. The most pious believer is not capable and competent for ministry in and of herself. No one is sufficient for ministry in and of themselves. And the only way that anyone can be made sufficient for ministry comes only through the transforming power of the Spirit. Well, how is it that we know this? Well, it's because of a question I've intentionally been avoiding. And if it's been in your head, you're asking the right question. What is the aroma of Christ? What is it? We kind of have to know that if we want to draw people to the Lord through our spiritual aroma. 
Well, the aroma of Christ is to have the character of Christ stamped on your life. Something that is possible only through the work of the Spirit. And that leads us to the central point of this passage. God is transforming you by the work of the Spirit so that you reflect the character of Christ and can do ministry anywhere. God is transforming you by a spirit. God is transforming you to reflect the character of Christ so that you can do ministry anywhere. And here's how we know this is true. It comes actually uh, in chapter 3. Paul elaborates a little bit, starting in verse 5, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Paul says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And let me paraphrase what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, I can't do ministry in my own strength. But God made me sufficient to do ministry by ensuring that the Spirit is working in me. The Spirit has placed new life in me and is actively transforming me to conform to the character of Christ so that I can accomplish this gospel ministry wherever I go. Between our passage in 2 Corinthians 2 and these two verses here in chapter 3, that's what Paul is saying in a nutshell. So, if the key to everywhere, all the time ministry is the Spirit transforming you to reflect the character of Christ, there's an all-important question that you need to ask. Am I reflecting the character of Christ? Am I walking in the Spirit? Those two are one and the same. If you look at the fruit of the Spirit in, in, uh, in, in Scripture, in Paul's writings, and if you look at the character of Christ as you see it in the Gospels, they're, they're one and the same. Am I displaying the character of Christ? Am I walking in the Spirit? Those are the same question. Because you're always going to be giving off an aroma. It's either the aroma of Christ or it's the aroma of your sinful flesh. Well, which aroma comes from your life? Are you walking in the Spirit? reflecting the character of Christ, or are you walking in the flesh? For instance, in your parenting, when your child sins against you in the same way for the eighth time that week, when he uses that unacceptable, disrespectful tone when answering you, in that moment, will you display the character of Christ or the sinful character of your flesh? Will you respond with, with firm but loving words that, that communicate God's truth that you are to obey and respect your parents or will your patience falter and you snap back with cruel, harsh words? Or you're sitting in your first class of the day and a classmate criticizes you or, or makes you the butt of a cruel joke. Will you respond with graciousness or will your flesh respond with worldly tactics and will you try to destroy them with gossip afterwards? When you're at work and, and no one is around keeping you accountable for what you're doing with your time on the clock, will the character of Christ in you compel you to show integrity and diligence or will you cave to the desire of your flesh and will you relax while no one is watching? When you're at the doctor's office and your appointment is canceled or rescheduled because of somebody else's complication or emergency, will the character of Christ rule in you, enabling you to respond with gracious, kind understanding? Or will you take out all your frustration on that poor receptionist who had nothing to do with it? Because do you know what that kind, understanding, patient answer smells like? 
that smells like Christ? Are you seeking to reflect the nature of Christ in all you do as the Spirit continually does his transformative work in you? Because whenever you reflect the nature of Christ, you're doing ministry. When that child, that peer, that boss, that receptionist, when you respond in a way that is so unlike the fleshly ways of the world, the aroma of Christ is reaching them. And it could be, it could be that God uses that moment to call them to himself, to extend life and hope through the aroma of Christ in you. Who is sufficient? Not you in and of yourself, but through the Spirit. As we are transformed to display the aroma of Christ, we are sufficient to draw people to the Lord through that type of gospel ministry. Or maybe a friend comes to you in a moment of tenderness. Um, and, and this happens frequently with believers. And, and you're asked a question about God. And you try your dead level best to answer it uh, at in the best way that you know how, but as you look back, you're like, ah, I did a totally inadequate job. If I just had a little bit more information or if I had said it uh, slightly differently, maybe it would have answered all their questions. And you look back and you kick yourself. Man, if, if I had given the answer differently, I had better information, it would have made all the difference. But here's the reality. If in that moment, even in your inadequacy of being able to answer the question, if in that moment you were walking in the Spirit, giving off the aroma of, the, of Christ, you literally, you literally cannot mess up ministry. Or maybe you do make a genuine, massive mistake as you, as in your interactions with others. Maybe it's with a coworker, maybe it's with a parent, and you sin against them, and you fear that you've just undone a whole bunch of ministry that God was accomplishing through you. Do you know what the aroma of Christ, what walking in the Spirit, do you know what that type of ministry looks like in that moment when you've sinned against them? It looks like a humility that seeks out the one that you wronged and says, I was wrong. I sinned against you and I need your forgiveness. Do you know what that humility smells like? It smells like Christ. Philippians 2, 8 paints it in the most vivid and clear colors of anywhere in Scripture. Philippians 2, verse 8, Jesus, who was found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humility is almost exclusively a Christian virtue. And, and I can think of no greater way to smell like Christ than to be people of humility. I mean, do you see it here? So long as you are walking in the Spirit, you are displaying the character of Christ. You're giving off that, that sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord that's drawing some to Him. So long as you are doing that, walking in the Spirit, literally, you cannot mess up ministry. God has enabled you to do ministry anywhere, at any given time, simply by living your life for Him, by following Him as a servant, being transformed by the Spirit giving off the aroma of Christ. So are you ministering effectively? Are you walking in the Spirit, reflecting the character of Christ? Would you stand with me here as we pray? Lord, we praise you. 
for this passage. We thank you that through the Spirit, you guided Paul to share some very vulnerable feelings with us at the beginning of this passage. Lord, his heart was in such turmoil that he felt he could not minister effectively where he was, and so he walked away from those massive open doors. He just followed where you led, and ministry still was able to happen. Lord, thank you that because of your sovereignty, that we can follow you simply wherever you lead. We don't have to worry about the the criticism of others. Lord, we don't have to worry if it feels like we're leaving the most fruitful field, that if we just simply follow you, living as servants, bound to do your will, that you will enable us to do ministry. So Lord, I ask that you would help us this week that we take a, a careful, introspective look into our hearts, asking if we have been transformed by the Spirit. Lord, every day we should be seeing some growth, growing in, the, in our likeness to Christ and our character that is like his. And Lord, would you encourage us when it feels like we've, we've ruined our ability to ministry? Would you remind us that so long as we're displaying the character of Christ, so long as we're walking in the Spirit, we're doing ministry. Lord, help us to be people who do ministry everywhere we go simply by following you and displaying the character of Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.